Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. is off to a great start to the week. Uh, We're halfway to Halloween, but scary moments can happen right before a show starts. Um, So it is a perfect time to have Dave Godsword return to give us some summer vacation ideas and some chills up and down our spines. Um, That's Tonight's show will give you some ideas on scaring the kids with readings at Lovecraftian sites or see where UFO encrypted hoaxes took place, see famous graves. Um, Dave has researched the East Coast for the unusual, and he'll be discussing many of his uh, books tonight. Um I think we have about uh, four uh, books we'll be covering tonight. So it's another one of those career retrospectives. Um, and you can learn more about Dave by visiting his website, uh, godsword.com. Hi, Dave. How are you? I am fine. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Um are you able to put your uh, phone a little closer to your mouth? Usually I have people requesting I get it further away. Uh, okay, yeah, that's, uh, that's better. Not, no, I I hear that too, but uh, no, <laughs> since, since you're our honored guest tonight, we want to he- hear all of your captivating stories. Uh, you, you know, you're even plugging... Um, what, like you, uh, uh, 
into the table or something like that and almost uh, destroyed the Mitchell Hedges skull. Uh, I wasn't uh, aware of that one. So, you know, uh, we could start off with that one or uh, get get into that later. It's entirely up to you. Um, that's one of those situations where I probably shouldn't get as much mileage from that story as I do. But it, it's just a fun story, and nobody got hurt, although I probably would have been crucified on the spot, I suppose. Okay, well, uh, uh, let's uh, let, let's hear it. I, I saw it on your advertisement for uh, tonight's show, and I was like, I, I, okay, I didn't know we were going to talk about this, so uh, let's let's uh, get get into your interaction with the Mitchell Hedges skull. For for those of you who don't remember the the Mitchell Hedges or the Hedges Mitchell, I think it depended on who you asked. Um, it was a found in South America. It is a crystal skull carved out of a single unit of quartz, and it was inherited by archaeologist's daughter named Anna Mitchell Hedges, and charming lady. It was the first of all the crystal skulls that were later discovered. Anna, in her declining years, started doing the psychic fairs. Now, this is back in the early 80s. We didn't have conventions, per se. We didn't have the big shows. These were just somebody local would rent a meeting room or a conference room at a local hotel and they would bring in the the tarot readers and the palm readers and she would come to these shows and she would display the skull and she would have a little book that she had put out which was a history of the discovery sign it it gave her some pin money and she had a a nice gentleman who was a handler for her well they did one of these shows in salem new hampshire now, Salem, New Hampshire also has a fairly well-known location, America's Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. And back in the early 80s, I was managing America's Stonehenge. And we got a call from the manager saying, we're in Salem. We'd like to come up and see how the skull interacts with, oh, whatever the flavor of the month was, ley lines magnetic mm-hmm. residence. I don't even remember what the what the particular story specific was. Now we were shutting down for the season. So this is late October, perfect time to sell. And we were running around. They they came up, they parked near the door because Anna was developing mobility issues by that point. And they brought the skull in and the skull was in a carrying case. Now, I'm going to show my age here. Does, if you know, boy, am I going to show my age on this one. The carrying case is what we used to carry around slide projectors in. Okay. It's a, it's a, it's a just basically a cheap piece of faux leather. This one was lined with satin, of course, for the skull, but it was, they're flimsy. They're designed to carry a piece of AV equipment. They're not designed to carry, you know, archaeological relics. 
still running around like a damn fool. I've got all of the staff, you know, trying to get everything closed down for the day. We've got people getting ready to take her up to the top of the hill with the skull. I've got the original building at that point. This is not the one, if you go there today, it's this nice, big, two-story, shiny building. This was a log cabin with a Franklin stove, and I had the stove cranked up because, again, it's end of season, it's end of day, it's cold. So I'm running around the corner to do something else, and I do mean running, and I suddenly look down, and there's the case. He had put it in the middle of one of my runways. Now, I'm wearing steel-toed boots, and if I pick that case, collapse, and it's going to treat that skull like a football, and I am going to punt it into the glowing red-hot Franklin stove. By sheer dumb luck, I managed to clear it with my foot. We're talking quarter-inch, half-inch clearance, and that's as much as I needed to safely get out of there, but that's how close I came to destroying the crystal skull. They did okay, take so, it up uh, to Mysteria. They did take it up to the hill. I, I was not going up. And they put it on, um, again, showing my age, a lazy Susan, and put it on the middle of the sacrificial table. And lo and behold, the, t- the lazy Susan with the skull on it shifted. Well, the table's not even. The skull is off weight. Of course it's going to move. I wasn't there. I can't dispute whether it was deliberate or not, but that's 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 my story of the crystal skull I almost destroyed. I guess he nearly destroyed a relic from Atlantis. But and I would have made really good distance when I did it. <laughs> yeah, well, in the uh, prophecy of you know, with, with the twelve other skulls being brought together uh, to solve all the world's problems would have never happened because of you. Yep, yeah, that one that one would have been on me. Of course, I'd probably <laughs> still be in hiding. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> I'm not proud of that story, by the way, but I am proud of how much traffic I've gotten out of it. Okay. Well, uh, I'm sure the listeners uh, enjoyed uh, hearing your captivating uh, recounting of that story. (laughs) So, 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 okay. So you, you just mentioned one summer. Uh, vacation destination in America's Stonehenge, uh, and yeah, you have a really interesting uh, book on other vi- or, or se- several books on uh, horror vacation sites. Uh, since it is yeah. a cold spring in the Northeast, um, you know, maybe you should talk about horror vacations in warmer climates like Florida. So if uh, people are still looking for ideas for 
uh, spring break or uh, you know taking the family on a summer vacation to Florida, they can pick up a copy of your horror guide to Florida and learn all about uh, you know we can get into um, you know the creature from the Black Lagoon and famous uh, people being in graveyard zombies. Uh, I particularly liked um, some of the backstories to Jaws Two. What? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. What? What can you tell us a little bit about Gulf Breeze? What can anybody say about Gulf Breeze? Gulf Breeze is um, if you if you happen to have a map of Florida around, and frankly, why do you at this time of night? Um, you will see that Gulf Breeze is up around Pensacola. And it is a, a charming little town, but the key word there is small. And I, I should preface this a little bit. I'm going to give you a little earlier background than I was going to. Jaws 1 was no fun to film because Cape Cod is very cold water. So when they decided they would film a second film, they didn't want to go back in the cold water. So they went up to what's called uh, Chakatawachi Bay, which is off, um, which is Pensacola area. And they had a lot better luck there because the water was shallow. They could keep the hydraulics on the shark working. They were warm enough that the cast could actually take more than one shot at a time and it it was a it was a learning experience and they learned well in it now the only one that was shot down here i mean this is a big area for shark films anyway i mean the the unofficial shark film known as jaws 5 cruel jaws that's uh that was shot down here the uh, mako jaws of death again another classic was shot down here. Um, I'm using the word classic very loosely, but Gulf Breeze is what you were asking about. Right. The high school is actually brought into service. Now, the the local drama club ended up playing extra in all the scenes, including there's a scene where the Amity High School marching band comes in. That actually is the Gulf Breeze High School Band. They bust them down to Navarra Beach, which was the central filming location. And so when they have the Amity High School Band for, in the grand opening celebration at the very beginning, mm-hmm. it actually is high school band. But most of the filming was done in Navarra. And you can tell I'm not a local because I'm pretty sure I'm mispronouncing it. But I don't care. Um, I'm a transplant. I'm allowed to mispronounce things. But it is the uh, I was a a cable junction. It was that like made for the movie in Florida, where they get stuck on the. uh, uh, Oh yeah, that was a that was a man-made island. They towed it out when they needed it. 
<laughs> most of the filming was done at uh, actually the central location for the whole movie was the Holiday Inn. Um, it was you know both that's like the operation center and of course that's where everybody stayed. But if you remember the movie, uh, there's this holiday indoor pool and recreation center that is the new Holiday Inn Amity Shores. That's actually the Holiday Inn at Navarra Beach where they were staying at the time. They literally picked up the camera, walked four feet, and opened a door. Now, unfortunately, the the Holiday Inn in Navarra Beach was very badly damaged in uh, Hurricane Ivan back in 04. And I and then uh, pretty much they destroyed it. Um, it. It was uninhabitable in 04. And then uh, the next year, Dennis, uh, the Dennis, Hurricane Dennis came through. And that pretty much took out the building. So you're not going to be able to see anything in Navarra. But that's, that's, that's basically their entire claim to fame. I'm not really sure it's on the signs anywhere, but yes. Okay. Well, they're, um, but C- cable junction, I guess, is um, oh, I'm t- I'm blanking. It's, it's, some of these locations are so obscure to even now. The uh, island, like I said, it was it was built on a raft. It just was flowed out into the bay when they needed it. But it was when they didn't need it, they pulled it back and it was moored at the Shalimar Yacht Club which is in Shalimar, Florida. So, you know, you, you bring your big, you know, multi-million dollar yacht uh, in for the holidays and you park it next to the fake island sitting at the hot wharf. That's, that's got to put you down a neg, just a touch. Well, it, it, it's interesting, you know, all, you know the research, you know, thorough research that you do for all these uh, you know, different settings, and uh, uh, um, I'm sure it, uh, the listeners and I are very interested in how learning the process of how movies are made and what may seem like a real uh, island was actually. Um, Probably a bunch of styrofoam blocks. Uh, no, it, was built, it was built on a, uh, I think it was a barge. I can't swear to yeah. it though. But because I mean, you had a bunch of kids dancing around on that thing. Well, dancing in the sense of I don't want to be eaten. Um, so it it was it had to be big and it had to be sturdy. But you can't find an island you can use. Right. You may oh, the behind the scenes for movies uh, uh, is it, it, you know, has some great backstories. Yeah. Well, personally, my favorite, if we're going to talk about tourist destinations down here, is Marineland. And St. Augustine has an, a barrier, big barrier island, and on it is Marineland, which had just opened up in the 50s. It was It was supposed to be... Hollywood East Underwater. It had this huge central tank that they were using for you were supposed to film there. And of course they they filmed episodes of 
the different TV shows, um, the Lloyd Bridges show, and actually a couple of episodes of Flipper where they because they could shoot in the water and still have it look realistic. Uh, of course, most of the Flipper doesn't count anyway for our purposes, but that was mostly down in Miami. But the Marine Land had problems. And the problem they had was they were too popular. The movie makers really didn't want to use them, but the tourists loved it. And they discovered there was more money to be made with dolphin shows than there was to be made by being a filming location. So they, they eventually phased out most of the filming. And when you did film, you had an audience. The um, famous film shot there would be, of course, Revenge of the Creature from the Black Lagoon, 1955. Mm-hmm. And, of course, in that film, the, monster, the, um, the, the creature is captured and brought back to, quote, unquote, civilization. Well, the aquarium he is in is marine land. And, in fact, if you recall the film at all, and this is one of my favorites, so we're, we're dangerously close to trivia here. He's To keep him in the tank, they chain his leg to an anchor in the middle of the observation tank. That anchor is still there. I have a picture of myself posing against it. It's sitting out in the, in the backyard as a landscaping element now. Oh, wow. But it, it's still there. It's one of the few pieces that left. The tank is gone. But what's fascinating to me is they shot number two there. And um, number three, they did. They shot that actually at several different locations down here, most notably Silver Springs, which is, a, again, another tourist destination. It's Florida. I don't even have to keep repeating that. If it's a name, it's a tourist destination. So, and Dave, you you talk about uh, Biscayne Bay. It actually had a lot of uh, other important movies shot there. It, uh, that was where the original uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon had some scenes shot there. Uh, you, you bring up. Uh, lifeboat. Uh, that yeah, that's a fascinating uh, Hitch, Hitchcock a, a experimental movie. Yeah, I mean, Day of the Dolphin. The water off of Hollywood is actually well, California. It's it's very rough compared to Florida, which is much more shallow. And of course, they've got all these islands protecting the coast so you have even less wave hitting the shore it makes it much easier to to film and they still film down here a lot not as much as they used to but um everything from day of the dolphins to like uh bikini swamp girl massacre i think that was one of the more recent ones that is not a classic um yeah yeah yeah, i missed that one yeah uh you didn't miss much um, the only the only good thing I can say about it is at least it wasn't two hours long. 
<laughs> okay, that's enough of a, a review, but I'm, I'm, but yeah, I, I'm sure out here, and uh, I mean Biscayne National Bay is, I guess it's now technically a national park. I mean H.P. Lovecraft visited Biscayne Bay, took a uh, glass bottom boat ride, saw the coral reefs out there, and then went back to Rhode Island and wrote. Shadows over Innsmouth, which features coral reefs off the coast of Massachusetts. Okay, and, and that's a uh, Lovecraft short story. Well, yeah, Shadows over Innsmouth. Actually, almost, almost, I'd call it a novella, but yes, yeah, short story. He visited Florida three times, and unlike other places he visited, you don't see a lot of Florida in his stories. I mean, I argue that his visits to St. Augustine show up in some of them, but he was very much more of a tourist than he was anything else when he came to Florida. It's not like when he went to, say, Newburyport, Massachusetts, which became Innsmouth. The story is Shadow Over Innsmouth literally starts in Newburyport. Massachusetts, where he was staying, and he visits, the hero visits the library, he visits the historical society, he stays at the YMCA. This is all right out of Lovecraft's visit. And then he goes down the coast to Innsmouth, which just happens to sound exactly like the sections of Newburyport that were along the shore where the clam diggers lived. So I can say that about Newburyport. I can't say that about Florida. Florida, yeah, the next story had a reef in it, but it's not a major piece. First visit, he visited St. Augustine. That was always his goal. He then went Tampa Bay, visited pulp horror writer Henry Whitehead, then took a bus cross-country to Miami, took a ferry over to Key West, visited Key West to Miami, Went back to St. Augustine. I spend way too much time charting this man. I think I'd be a stalker if he was still alive. The, the second and third visit, he's not as active. He, he's visiting a protege named Robert Barlow, who lived in a um, two-dog town called Cassia, which isn't even incorporated. So if you look it up on a map, you're not going to find it. <laughs> It's halfway between Eustace and Stetson University, which is in D-Land. And if you have to ask, don't. Fascinating because although Lovecraft does not actually use Florida extensively in his material, he was such an influence on Barlow, Robert Barlow, who was a, a, a wee lad at that point. He was in his teens. He, but he became a uh, very well-respected, award-winning poet. He became an artist, and he became one of the foremost authorities on the Aztecs. He taught at Mexico City University, was fluent in Nahuatl, uh, which was the language of the Aztecs. So. I mean, Lovecraft had some Florida connections, but the connections are the ones who really did the, the major work afterwards. When 
you know, uh, maybe in a little bit we can get into your uh, book Lovecraft in the Merrimack Valley. But when you approach um, you know a, a larger piece on uh, you know, doing a biography of you know, someone like uh, Lovecraft. And you know you're uh, you know just kind of focusing on uh, his later years and you know the few examples from your horror guide to Florida as well as developing it uh, his life life more uh, extensively in the uh, Merrimack Valley book. How? much uh, time and research do you have to put into uh, you know, looking at old photos, you, know, you, you go in there yourself to see you know, what it looks like you know, nearly 100 years later, you know, the background research. You know, are Listeners are creative, and you know they're you know, doing pro, uh, you know their own writing projects. How much time is it involved in doing something right like you do it? Well, if you're doing it like I am, first of all, stop it because you're just going to hurt yourself. Uh, <laughs> but every book. I do, and I, I think I'm up to like, oh, I've got four more out this year. So I'm up to almost 20 books at this point, all nonfiction. And each one is different. I mean, I have a very clear image of what I'm going to do when I start, and it is never the book that comes out. So it, it's almost allowing the book to holistically evolve on its own. I did not expect to do an entire book on Lovecraft in the Merrimack Valley. I was actually just doing a pamphlet as a favor to a librarian in Haverhill who was a, a friend of the family who used to get Lovecraft fans coming into Haverhill because he mentions his visits to Haverhill in some of his letters. And they'd say to the reference desk, where can I find, oh, try out Smith's house? And they would go, who now? And they'd go up to my buddy, Greg Lang, up in Special Collections. And he would go, I have no idea. And that was not something Greg liked to say to anybody. So eventually he found out I had been dabbling with Lovecraft because of his visits to Mystery Hill. And said, would you make me a list of the places in Haverhill that he visits so I can get these people some sort of a handout and get them out of my library and back out on the streets where they belong. And I said, all right, all right. Well, next thing I know, I've got a book. Because he was here a lot in the Merrimack Valley. He absolutely loved Newburyport. He absolutely loved Portsmouth, New Hampshire. He visited Haverhill several times. Um, I did not expect it to be as big as it was. His last major work was something called The Shadow Out of Time. And the name of the hero 
Nathaniel Heasley is right out of the graveyard, the original colonial graveyard in Haverhill, which it's the stone next to Nathaniel Saltonstall, the judge from the witchcraft trials, which he would have come to visit. The guy was born, raised on Golden Hill on Boardman Street. Well, that's an area when he came to visit Tryout Smith, the amateur press man, he would have gone for walks. This is an area they would have explored together. So it it evolves that way. Now, the Florida book, my uh, Florida, I assumed would be something similar. I was mistaken, badly mistaken. Three separate trips, but they don't flow like the Merrimack Valley did. It's not a continual stream. It's 1931, and then he doesn't come back until 1935. And it doesn't work well as a narrative. So I had to break it up by this is him in St. Augustine in 1931. This is him in Tampa Bay in 1931. This is him in Miami and Key West in 1931. And then there's no no segue to the next visit. But what I discovered was that there was a lot of references to Florida visits in his letters. And Lovecraft wrote a lot of letters. They estimate something like 100,000 pages in his lifetime. That's a lot. Yeah, and there's a lot of published letters. I mean, I think there's about 15 or 16 of the volumes sitting in my desk right now. So if you hear a large crash, you'll know what it is. Um, But so what I discovered was I could put a chapter in that was not a segue as much as a ability to say, well, Florida was still influencing me. Florida was still luring him back and just discuss the references in his letters and the, the, the comments he makes about Florida. And it's still not working well. So to these locations, there's a particular person he is visiting in St. Augustine. His first visit, he's visiting a retired milliner from New York, which is who his wife had known. So little biographical sketch of him. When he goes to Tampa Bay, a little biographical sketch of Henry Whitehead. And that's between those two items, it fills into a very nice book. The problem is I was not expecting to write that many biographical sketches. So and then of course COVID came along and shut down the whole operation. So So that book's only about two years behind. Okay, so it yeah, Dave, is the um, Lovecraft in Florida book coming out soon? It's coming out this year. Okay. How's that for not saying yes or no? Um, of course, I also said that last year. Um, no, I I have two chapters left to write. That's it. And one of them is a biographical stretch, uh, sketch of Robert Barlow artist, poet, printer, apologist. And that's actually the most difficult part, simply because he is 
all over the place. He lives in Florida, and then they moved to Kansas, and then they moved to California, and then he moved to Mexico. And so it, it's a little hard to track down what he was doing at any given minute because he, he's not writing letters. Lovecraft dies in 37. Barlow stops corresponding with him for obvious reasons. So anytime after that, you almost have to start from scratch again. I love it, but I got at least one publisher out there who's going, where's my book, Dave? Where's my book? Now, compare that to the horror guides. Again, entirely different situation. You kind of know. I mean, you you can go to Internet Movie Database and, you know, get a list of movies shot in Florida, but they don't give you any specifics. So if you know, uh, oh, let's pick one of my favorites. Ted V. Mickles, the king of the low-budget movies in the early 2000s, did a series on uh, called Astro Zombies. It's, it's as bad as you wink, might think. Well, I knew he shot it around Daytona Beach. But once the movie, which is the punishment you get for doing these books, I discovered it. he shot film at the Daytona Beach newspaper. I can see the sign on, on the front. Uh, and then I look at another scene, and there's the Athens Theater in D-Land, which is, again, it ties back to the Lovecraft crowd. But you just start there and, and that's just one movie you have two two or three listings and they you add up some of the oddball stuff you've got you know um stephen king has stories down here and that's that's my little running gag in the book it's not just places to visit it's fictional places mentioned and the king has a story set in duma key which is set around up in the Pensacola area. And, of course, the fun part of that is that Stephen King owned a house on a key in the area. He describes roads and uh, the hospital in Saratoga. It's because he knows the material. He's he's visited all the time. And um, it makes it more interesting in the sense that if you just go to my book and you look up where am I going to go for vacation, you're not going to find every single place you can go to. I mean, you can't go to Duma Key where Stephen King is setting his story because it doesn't exist. Um, you can't go to Henry Whitehead's house in Dunedin because it was demolished in 1971. But it's a very important location as a horror writer. It, it, it just, it starts there and you run with it. There are towns that I have never heard of and their only claim to fame is that somebody shot a movie there or somebody famous is buried there. I mean, Leslie Nielsen is down here in Fort Lauderdale. I visited that one myself. Oh, he—he's really—he—he's buried. Uh, Leslie's uh, buried in uh, Leslie Florida. Buried in Florida. Yep. Uh, sh- surely you're serious about that? 
Yes, I am, and stop calling me Shirley. I, I, I really I'm like glad his, you, I'm yeah, glad, he's a I'm pioneer. Glad you set that one up. I'm glad you set that one up. I would have been disappointed without that one. Um, yeah, he's in Evergreen Cemetery, which is in Fort Lauderdale. He's got a it's a very nice little grave. He's got a park bench in front of it. And he's got a headstone with a fart joke on it. Of course. A, 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 of friend, course. a friend of mine uh, it interviewed him and uh, – you know, she she really appreciated uh, the opportunity. You know, you know, such a big name star for fifty years, and you know, she, she she was. You know, Angela was really glad uh, she had that opportunity to talk talk to him. Um, she, she thought he was very gracious. <laughs> yeah, I, wicked sense of humor too. Very, very vaudevillian. No, I, I, I just didn't, did not uh, realize he, he was um, buried in Florida. Oh yeah, it's, that's that's our logo down here. Come for the sun, stay for the funeral. <laughs> but I digress. Um, and there are locations you don't think of as horror that certainly qualify. I mean, Leslie Nielsen, most people don't think of as a horror actor, but uh, Elves from Tales of Tomorrow, Forbidden Planet, Voice to the Bottom of the Sea, Poseidon Adventure, pretty much Mm -hmm. every Irwin Allen TV movie ever made, played the father of Jamie Lee Curtis in Prom Night. So, I mean, right there, as far as I'm concerned, he's in but oh, you, well, all, all the Naked Gun movies. Yeah. yeah. Some of them don't really qualify as a horror book, but you'd be amazed at how stretchy I can make the topic when I have to. <laughs> if there's something I want in the book, trust me, it's going in the book, no matter how widely I have to rationalize it. But, but it, it, you know, it, you know, Dave, with your observations of – yeah, the towns and cities, locations that appear in people's uh, books and in the movies. Um, finding that the authors really have much better works if they write about what they can see and know and get to know the streets um it's you know i'm kind of going through that too with the project and i'm sure the listeners or you might be looking for information to confirm how to make this one chapter a little bit better are are you finding by studying other authors that going Getting to know uh, the streets and uh, terrain actually make your writing much more personal. Find your personal comfort level. Now, if you're writing nonfiction, yes, 
you absolutely have to go down that street. I mean, um, in cryptozoology, there are people tell how they saw a monster. They were driving down this street, and it was suddenly there. And then you go down that street, and you realize there's a dip in the road and a little curve. So, yeah, something could appear in front of you very quickly. You don't get that from the interview. You have to physically see the road. Mm-hmm. Perhaps not as much in the horror guide, for instance. Um, but there are some oddball things that you have to know the material before you go looking. For instance, Hollywood International Airport, Fort Lauderdale. In 1942, it became the Naval Air Station, Fort Lauderdale. Five, an air flight named 19. Flight 19 left Fort Lauderdale on a training mission. That's the most famous military mission that was lost in the Bermuda Triangle. There is Is, a memorial to the lost squadron at the airport that people look have driven by hundreds of thousands of them a day. Nobody's ever noticed it. Is is that the squadron from Close Encounters? Yep, they find the in Close Encounters. They find the planes in the uh, desert. Mm Hmm. So it uh, qualifies right there. And, of course, the best part is from from an author's perspective, it means I can use a few more Bermuda Triangle listings, which technically isn't Boston. Uh, Boston. I wonder where my head is. Uh, technically, Bermuda is not in the horror guide for Florida. But if you're using footage of Flight 19, to use it. And I will. I'm not proud. I will use it. But to go back to your original question, um, when you're writing fiction, it's it's really a different situation. I tend to get as much realistic material as I can in a story. Um, I I actually do write fiction, um, horror mostly, humorous horror and mysteries. And I do most of my mysteries set down here in Florida. So I rely on the fact that I know what conditions are like on 95. And I know how quickly the storms come up and how quickly they disappear. And I know how to make fun of the tourists because I've lived down here that long. And so has the character. But in terms of actually finding the house they live in or the street, no, that's that's not as far as I go. Other people do. I mean, I did a mystery which involved uh, a ghost who spoke Scottish, Gaelic, and I had to learn enough Gaelic to make it sound realistic and yet not bore the readers by having an entire conversation in Gaelic. So, as vague, but yeah, I think if you're writing fiction, you've got to decide how much realism you need versus how much you can just make up. And there are ways online to help you with that, for that matter. The uh, Internet Movie Database ain't the only game in town. You've got a a firearm database. You've got a 
worldwide license plates. You've got um, automobile database. So if you're watching a TV show and you go, I like that car. My my hero would drive that. You could go to this internet automobile database, find the TV show you were watching, and they'll tell you what the car making model was. That'll do. I'm not I'm not a car guy, so that's that's as close as I get to my expertise. Yeah, but but it, it it's you know just um, ha- having a discussion about. Uh, you know your creative process is uh, interesting. You know, contrasted with how other people go about, um, you know, get, gathering data for their book. You know, I, I'm you know just if uh, I'm doing, I'm doing nonfiction. I fall back on my roots. I have, I mean, I am a retired librarian, so I'm always going to do the research anyway. But I start in places that nobody else seems to think to look. And I don't understand why, because, you know, the old days before electricity was invented, this this is what they taught you. You need information about a guy? Look him up. I mean, now you got Ancestry.com. Look up a city directory. You can pick a name in a city directory, any name, any city, and then look him up for the next, you know, five volumes, and you will discover when he gets married, when he gets a new job, when he moves. These are all little details that are useful when you're researching somebody, particularly someone who's, you know, been dead for 50, 60, 70, 100 years. Not everybody's as well researched as some of these names. Uh, let me keep dropping like Lovecraft. But there are some tremendous, simple and elegant ways to do the research on a character. Um, and I don't know why people don't do it. I mean, it, it doesn't seem to be that difficult of a concept to me. I mean, you're writing a book and you need to talk about a person, you've got two sources. You don't even have to leave your office. You go to Ancestry.com, you got your threes, you got your census, and you've got the newspaper databases, obituaries, marriage records, lawsuits, interviews. I mean, I don't find writing the material is that difficult. It's deciding what to write and how to put it together. But you've read enough of my work, I think, at this point, and bless your heart for doing it, um, that I think I tend to into a larger perspective than necessarily other authors would. So when I say, and I'm going to, since since we're in Florida anyway, Lovecraft visits, St. Augustine. Well, when he visited St. Augustine, there was a civil war going on between the the historical society who ran everything and the historians who said, you can't have six buildings that are the oldest building in Florida. And 
this is the time period where Lovecraft is visiting uh, the the uh, Castillo San Marcos, the fort. But and he talks about you know hearing the legends of the ghosts in the fort and how they found a a hidden chamber where somebody had been bricked in and you know that, that's that's right out of Edgar Allan Poe and right. all of those stories were developed by the historical society to make the tourist happy. It had nothing to do with what was going on in the fort. Uh, there was no bricked-in hidden passages. It was just a, an alcove, and the story grew. And that's that's almost why this, um, the National Park Service took over the Castillo about that same time because of this sort of stuff. And I know all that because I wanted to understand what Lovecraft was visiting, not just that he visited St. Augustine. He visited New Smyrna, which is one of my new favorite places on the whole planet, because Teen Hundred's sugar mill that was destroyed in the Second Seminole Indian War, that within 10 years, people were claiming was ruins built by Columbus's second voyage crewmen. It was good for tourism. It doesn't have to be accurate. That was that was the mentality in Florida in the 1930s. Lovecraft was there during a transitional time. So I don't think it necessarily has to be put into the book as an expository, but it it gives me a perspective, and I can sprinkle it in as needed. Okay, so are, are you are you doing an article on this uh, sugar mill that? Yes, yes, I am. Okay. In fact, I, in fact, I believe it's already, I believe it's due out fairly soon. It's in uh, Ancient American Magazine. I've I've started doing contributor there. Um, so I'm I'm kind of doing one per issue, so four a year, and I'm just again picking stuff out of the out of my files. So this is the the quote unquote lost chapel of Columbus will be out in the June issue of Ancient American, and I some of these are just fun. I mean, I I did one for the September issue, and I, yes, I'm that far ahead. Uh, on the history of Vikings in New Hampshire, because for some reason people thought Vinland was in New Hampshire for a brief while. And again, it was tourism more than it was anything else. There's a gravestone, and I'm I'm using the term very loosely, that supposedly is of Leif Erikson's brother in Hampton. New Hampshire. It was found along the shore. It was. It's been moved now to the local museum's campus, but that was proof that Thorvald Eriksson was there, and that was the focus of the town's tercentenary, tercentenary, 400th anniversary, um, and it was found by 
or rediscovered, I should say. I shouldn't say found. It was never lost. Discovered by Malcolm Pearson, who was the protege of William Goodwin, who owned Mystery Hill, who was looking for the rock to buy it and put it in a museum he was going to build up at America Stonehenge. Well, Pearson had never seen the stone before, so they're not 100% sure they got the right rock. It showed up a lot earlier, but it was identified as Thorvald's headstone because they wanted to build a park there that would make people want to take the trolleys on the weekends because trolley companies needed more riderships on the weekend at that time. And we still see that today. Um, Cations throughout New England, I don't know about the rest of the country, to be honest, um, where the trolley people were paying a flat monthly fee for electricity. So if people didn't ride it on the weekends because they weren't working, they were technically losing money. And so they would build these destinations, trolley parks. Uh, there's a there's one still in New Hampshire called Canopy Lake, and it's now an amusement park. But at that point, it was typical of a trolley park. It had a, a gazebo for dancing. It had rowboats you could rent. It had play areas, picnic grounds. The whole point was to get you out of the house and onto the trolley. And they were all over the place. They were in uh, New Hampshire at uh, Canopy Lake, which was the Haverhill-Lawrence-Lowell line. You also had one trying to be built in Hampton. So they decided that their trolley park would be Viking Park, and it would be built around Thorvald's headstone, which conveniently happened to be in the middle of the land that the trolley company owned for the park. Mm -hmm. And if I sound suspicious, I am. Because this rock just appeared in the media, fully developed, about a year after the first few books started showing up about the Vikings in North America. This is the time period when Boston gets its Leif Erikson statue, and Tower is a Viking settlement, and the Dighton Rock, and all these well-known ancient sites in New England are suddenly Viking. Not because they were Viking, but because Longfellow had written a bunch of poems about Vikings, and now it was the craze at the time. You can still go into Boston, look for buildings that are 110, 150, 30 years old. You will see that over the door, there are Viking designs. If you use the bridge, the Longfellow Bridge between Boston and Cambridge and look over the side, the supports have Viking ships at the waterline. So you, the bridge has Viking longboats cutting through the Charles River. This is, you know, it, the second wave of that was the Kensington Runestone, which isn't Viking because the date on the stone is doesn't allow it to be Viking, but that's why you have Minnesota Vikings playing football. That's why you have all long ships at the uh, World's Fair in Chicago in 1894. 
It's why you have radiator caps on the Hudson cars that are streamlined Art Deco Viking heads, which frankly are the creepiest thing you ever saw. But it, it was a fad. And the only advantage of it is is that it, it helped save some of these sites. Sight and Rock probably would have been blown out of the water as a navigation hazard otherwise. Um, Newport Tower, I, I shudder to think what would have happened to that. So, I mean, there's some good sides to it. But on the other side, New Hampshire has 12 miles of shoreline. I'm pretty sure the Vikings could do better. I'm not sure how I got there, but okay. <laughs> I, I tend so, to wander off in the middle of a conversation, don't I? Uh, no, no, no uh, uh, that's fine. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you you present captivating information. So, um, okay, so yeah, let's uh, wander back down to. Uh, Cape Canaveral, since uh, Florida ha- is known for you know the space exploration, and you know you do uh, bring up the important points about uh, Jules Verne's um, interest in Florida from what, what, like the 1860s or 70s. Well, he was he was right, basically. He was in the wrong location, but he just, you know, low enough so that you were near the equator. The weather was good, and if it, if it blew up, it would blow up over water. He just happened to pick um, Tampa Bay instead of Atlantic. So he was he was close. He was close. I'll give him credit. But Kennedy Space Center and Port Canaveral are are everywhere. Even before there was astronauts at Cape Canaveral, it was being used. I mean, you you think Cape Canaveral automatically, you think NASA. Well, before NASA, there was um, all sorts of other people using it. Um, the most notable of which would be uh, – I'm blanking on his name. Isn't that nice? Robert Chambers, famous horror writer used the Cape Canaveral breakwater for a series of short, well, basically cryptozoology horror stories. Um, the most famous, as opposed to good, was a novel called In Search of the Unknown, and it starts at Cape Canaveral. And again, this is 1904. There, there isn't going to be a rocket ship there for a long time. But then they head out into the Everglades because they're looking for some mystery creature. In that time period, the Everglades did go all the way up to Cape Canaveral. If you look at a map of of, uh, Florida, I don't know why I can't say the word Florida tonight. Freud must be having a field day. Um, If you look at a map of Florida – you'll notice there's a big lake in the middle, Lake Okeechobee. Mm -hmm. The Everglades went up over that. They were all the way up to the other end of the lake. Lake Okeechobee was basically a 
drainage lake for the swamps. So when he says they went to Cape Canaveral and then went into the Everglades, they basically got in a boat and headed west. And again, it's it's the perspective thing. People don't recognize it. But all of the development down here is after that date. They're draining the swamps. That's why Lake Okeechobee, when it lets go, is going to going to make a really big swamp again. Because and it's it's built with wood earthen dikes around it to keep the water in, and they just keep. You know, pave it. It's Florida. If it's flat, they'll pave it. And if they can pave it, they'll build on it. And then they'll complain about the traffic. It, it, it's like a wave. It started in Miami, and it's, it's hit Palm Beach, and it's gone past, and it's up into Port St. Lucie. And behind it is this abandonment. You You see these empty shopping plazas that are nothing but storefront churches and second-hand stores because nobody's there's all the companies have moved further out because that's where the construction is therefore that's where the people are and down here you don't drive you know drive four miles and turn left on the main street you don't you know that's just not how it's done down here you you head west and the traffic light after the fifth CVS is where you turn because they're on every freaking corner because there's these housing developments off the main roads that you can't even see from the street and the density of the population is such that the bean counters are going to put in a drugstore and if CVS puts one in, Walgreens puts one in and if Walgreens and CVS are there then you're going to put in a McDonald's and then you're going to put in a gas station and every single Every single intersection looks like that now. That's the real horror in Florida. So what? I, I don't know where we got there either. Um, but Ca- yeah. yeah, Cape Canaveral is because of I Dream a Genie. You've got classic movies like The Crawling Hand, personal favorite of mine, by the way. Um, First man mission to the moon goes horribly wrong. The second attempt returns to Earth, but just as they are, it self-destructs over California, conveniently meaning you don't have to film in Florida. And when they try to figure out what went wrong, the disembodied arm of the astronaut starts crawling around, strangling people, fueled by a cosmic mutation. You probably now have a better sense of my taste in movies than anybody really should. Uh, um, I've seen Plan 9 from Outer Space a few times. Well, I'm not sure I'd be admitting that on live radio, but um, there are – It's in the same genre. (laughs) Sadly, yes, you are correct. But you, you've got things like um, Frankenstein meets the space monster. Martians. Mm-hmm. It's always Martians. Or, uh, well, heck, Men in Black 3. That takes place down here. So 
it's a weird state for horror because you've got real horror. You got you know you got Lovecraft and you've got Anne Rice and Stephen King running around. You've got the low budget movies. I mean the, the drive-in movie horror. King or Godfather of Horror, I guess. The Godfather of Gore was his name at the end. Herschel Gordon Lewis invented the concept of on-screen <clears throat> on-screen gore. Prior to that, they didn't do it. But drive-in movies were were in such demand that they had to churn out these movies, and they were running out of ideas. So he went to a local pharmaceutical firm and said, I need something that looks like blood that won't poison the actors if they have it in their mouth. And they developed blood, fake blood down here so that they could use it in these Herschel Gordon Lewis movies. And these are not movies that one would really admit to watching, which, of course, are why they're my favorites. I I, I knew Herschel Gordon Lewis, and, uh, you know, just a fun guy he, he made. With, uh, they needed realistic blood. And it had, it, you know, somebody's getting stabbed, they have to spit blood out of their mouth. And the stuff they were using at that time was toxic which really makes it tough to get an actor to do more than one movie. So they went to a, a Coral Gable, Florida lab, and that's how they developed this makeup. In fact, they still make theatrical supplies today. It's, it's more profitable than the pharmacy was. But Herschel Gordon Lewis is exactly the type of thing we were famous for in terms of the film. There was a hotel in what's now considered Miami. Back then it was considered Sunnyside Isles. Store Hotel. And it basically had a, a cheap plaster of Paris style sphinx on the outside and kind of a triangular front. So they filmed Blood Feast there, which is about a caterer who goes insane. He who happens to be Egyptian and he's trying to recreate a classic ancient Egyptian blood feast to to raise the gods. That's as much plot as you need for a movie down here. But, but look at how much uh, the listeners are learning about uh, cinematic innovations. <laughs> yes, basically it was red-flavored K-O-Pectate. So it's... <laughs> But uh, what are you going to do? Uh, there's just been so many movies down here that are – they're remarkable and they're memorable, but not necessarily for the right reason. And I don't know how else to explain it other than to, to tell you about one of my personal favorites, Blood Freak. And if you've ever seen Blood Freak, you get extra brownie points with me. No, I, I missed that one. I'm sorry to say. Oh, you you need to stop immediately and go find a copy. Trust me on this one. There was there was a um, Spanish language Tarzan film being shot at Rainbow Springs, 
in like 1970, 1972. Rainbow Springs is where they did the uh, Jeepers Creepers movie, by the way. And oh, okay. it's got Tarzan and, Jane, Tarzan and Jane were uh, tied up and the special effects went bad and they were badly burned. The two actors are sent to the burns unit at the hospital and the film crew jumped, skipped the country. So when they got out of the hospital, they were unemployed. They got medical bills. So this guy, Steve Hawks, who was the known as the Italian Tarzan, um, agreed to do this movie with a fellow named Brad Grintner. And that was a, oh, God, how do you explain Blood Freak to somebody without shutting down the whole show? Um Steve plays the hero. He is the good guy. He stops to help a motorist in distress, and she invites him home to meet her family. And her father offers him a job at the family turkey farm. That's an important clue for future reference. Uh, and they, st- he basically, for all of the turkeys, They've got all these hormones and chemicals they're injecting into the turkey, and he's testing them to make sure that they, they're not detectable by taste. The other daughter, the evil daughter, gets him hooked on the marijuana, but it's a new strain, and it reacts to the experimental turkey's chemicals. And he turns into a vampire turkey mutant that chases junky teenagers through the woods to drink. And when I say he turns into a vampire turkey mutant, they put a paper mache giant turkey head on him. You got to see it to believe it. Okay, so uh, it, it's uh, Blood pretty freak. similar, but but only better than uh, Motel Hell. Uh, oh, I hate to pick and choose. I I, I know what'll sell this one for you. The movie wasn't long enough to release even to the drive-in, so the director slash producer Brad Grittner did drop-in spots where he's chain-smoking in a hotel room with one of those old metal folding tables and giving message, messages about how drugs are bad for you. So the, the movie turns into an anti-drug, pro-religious film about a bloodthirsty vampire turkey mutant. Okay. Good luck. Good luck with that one. There are not. There have never been any movies I have ever shut off. That that one comes pretty darn close to the list. Okay. Well, uh, sounds like it has possibilities for uh, you know maybe getting the director to be a nightlight guest. I don't know. Uh, Barbara might say well, no. I don't, know I don't know who's still alive. To be honest, um, I know the the star Steve Hawks. Um, 
he passed away. Um, I don't think any of the other actresses or actors ever acted again, and frankly, I don't blame them. And Brad Gritt, I don't know, the director has passed away. His son actually still lives in the area, but I believe he runs a, a nightclub now. So, yeah, I, I I would like to have a few words with him, too. Like, what were you thinking? <laughs> Okay, so since you were just talking about uh, these uh, mutant turkeys, um, it, you know, the, the last time you were a guest with us, um, yeah, you did talk about some of these um, uh, cryptid sea monsters that uh, for, from your uh, – Sun, Sand, and Surf uh, book that washed up on uh, shore uh, in in, throughout the southern uh, states. Um, You were you know got some interesting uh, insights between the kind of cryptid creatures that. are found in the uh, salt water and the brackish water, uh, you know, the swamp swamps. Uh, and you were uh, planning on doing a, a northern sea monster cryptid yes. type, type good, book. Good, good, uh, memory, good memory. Yeah, what's the status on that one? That that one is going to be called Capes, Coves, and Cryptids. You can sense the theme, can't you? And mm-hmm. it should. It was going to come out this year for the uh, International Cryptozoology Museum conference in May, but uh, the museum decided that they could not do it this year because of the um, construction. They uh, they just bought a new building up in Bangor. So they're moving the museum from Portland, Maine to Bangor. And that is such a distraction. They decided it's really not going to happen this year. So I said, you know what? I got other books I can, I can get out. I, I have other projects. So I, I've kind of backburned it. It's about half done. It will be out next year at the absolute latest. And, it is interesting to see the difference between New England and Florida sea monsters. The difference being the history. Okay. There uh, is so, and what's the much, difference? Much, much deeper history in Florida. I in, in New England. Of course we we've been here longer too. I mean you there there are there are I gotta pull up. I gotta pull up the book because I'm gonna have no head for date, so I'm gonna cheat here. Don't don't tell anyone. But I mean, 1640 for the Pilgrims. We were there were already people up and down the coast. Canada had fishermen who had been here for a hundred years by that point. So um, Henry Hudson, 1608, sees a mermaid. I mean, 1608, Florida had was a swamp. 
with a few settlers up north. So it, it's that rich of a history. And it just goes on and on and on like that. Um, 1639, uh, Black Point, Maine. Um, he, that's a, a brain cramp there. Um, Jocelyn was his name. Henry Jocelyn was entertaining the son of a local businessman who was a close friend of the proprietor of the property. So basically we're talking about the upper class in the 1630s. And his brother John shows up and the guy had a background in herbalism and probably medicine. I say that that way because we have no idea. He's complete unknown except for the fact that he wrote two books. And Joslyn writes a book about Maine because that's what you did in those days. It was such an exotic, rare country that anything you said. And he got a story from a local fellow in Maine. And it wasn't just one. It was a, it was a several of them, um, one of which was, again, a mermaid. But he also has in 1639, the book comes out 1674, so there's some fudging there. Um, but it's the earliest record of the Cape Ann Sea Monster, which would be Cape Ann Gloucester Harbor area, but it wouldn't be for another 200 years. So it pushes the sea serpent accounts down in Massachusetts back another 200 years. And it's there's stuff older than that floating around out there. So, and sun, sand, and sea monsters, you know, you're covering some of the uh, behaviors of um, – Animals like an uh, octopus goes uh, is going to go under a rock, and yeah, you know, the journal that you're uh, recounting, you know, saying that uh, you know, the, you know, this guy, uh, you know, hooked something that it was just uh, incredibly. Uh, huge and snapped his pole or something. Okay, but uh, you de- describe or analyze what's in the journal and you know, kind of give us a suggestion that you know, this is uh, a typical behavior for an octopus, and you know, he went under a rock. Um, with some of the northern uh, sea monsters, are you able to uh, come up with a what the person may have been describing? Yes and no. Um... Part of the the pro, I don't you love when I commit like that. Um, problem with Florida, uh, New England is some of this stuff is so old that you've got to you've got to filter it through. You know, well, basically Puritanism. 
I mean, it's 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 you know, Luther is is Lutherans, but less fun. And as a result of that, you you really get a very biblical interpretation of some of this material. Now, some of it is trickier. Again, you've got to figure out what the focus is. You've got uh, let's 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 pick one of my favorites, Lake Champ Champlain. Okay, Lake Champlain, Lake Champlain, very well monster, very well known monster. Mm-hmm. But right from the start, there are issues. Samuel Champlain never saw a sea monster. If you read his original journal, he's describing a big fish, and there are big sturgeon in Lake Champlain. But that doesn't explain what other people have seen. So all that does is it starts to show you that there are issues with the reporting. There are more recent materials that you could look at and go, well, that is definitely weird. And it's definitely not a sturgeon. But if you zoom back a little bit, you see that Lake Memphremagog, which is still in Vermont, crossing over into uh, Quebec, has the same situation. They have got sea monsters. They go back quite a ways, and they really don't have a clearly identified critter attack. Um, there are reports of a creature in Lake Memphremagog back to 1816, which compared to Lake Champlain is fairly recent. But the re- the person who reported in 1816 was the son of the founder of the town, of which is now the city of Magog. And he recorded four separate sightings, eight witnesses, and added that the Indians wouldn't go into the lake because of the giant serpents or alligators in it. So you've already, right there in the first eight, first report, you've got two different types of sea monsters. You've got a giant alligator or you've got a giant serpent. But other reports, the color of a skinned sheep, which I assume would be kind of pink, which kind of would ties it in with Pinky down in St. John's, Florida, but with 12 to 15 pairs of legs. So it's basically a pink centipede in the water. And that's just, that's two different sets of witnesses, three different types of monsters. Which one, which one, who's seeing things? You go further back, Hmm. there is a carving, an Indian petroglyph on one of the local lakes that looks like a snake. And you see a lot of that. And uh, an archaeologist named Ed Lenick, who specializes in northeastern petroglyphs, says very simply, the petroglyph is located in an area where every single lake in eastern townships of Quebec, which would include Mount Magog, which would include Lake Champlain, all have lake monsters. 
which means there are lake monster accounts in other lakes, St. Francois, Almer, Moffat, Williams, Breaches, Massawippi, uh, Pokenhogamak. You know, you're, that suggests that there is a native tradition of lake monsters that predates the white colonists. That suddenly makes me interested. Most of the reports in these small lakes are, you know, the classic long neck sea serpent. Okay. You're not getting all these other things, but uh, there have also been reports of horned serpents, which is an Indian motif again, giant alligators, um, horse-headed monsters. I mean, it, it, it's running the whole gamut, and I just – I don't have a clear sense as I am into that whole section of the book. I don't have a clear idea of what they're seeing or how many they're seeing or, you know – is a long neck monster mean that everybody's got a lake monster because it's got a long neck monster in it? Does it mean there's some sort of a giant eel in that lake? Does it mean the travel agencies have decided that it can get a little bit of the Lake Champlain monster hunter money coming to them instead? Don't know. I'm fascinated by it, though. You don't see that sort of diversity elsewhere. I mean, Florida, you've got things like um, – the St. John's River, which has three or four different descriptions that they've all lumped together as one sea serpent, but it's you know this one is this one is an alligator seal, this one is whatever the heck it is. So you you don't see that multiplicity of descriptions, Florida or the Deep South, that you you're seeing just in that one area of eastern Quebec, northern Vermont. Mm-hmm. And to me, that suggests there's a pattern there. And as soon as there's a pattern there, I'm all over it. But I, I don't have a firm grasp on it yet. You go to something like, uh, well, Cape Ann, which I mentioned. Those are those are all describing the same creature, a serpentine. Some sort of a, a very long snake, and it lasts for a very long time. You, you see them... As, well, heck, I don't think you've seen any lately, but they're, they date – there's about a, too long of a period, let's put it that way, for a conventional sighting. Um, 1817 is really where you see the spike in these sea serpent monsters. And it just keeps going, 17, um, 20s, 30s, 40s, 1880s, 1890s, into the 1930s and 40s. And it all seems to be basically a serpentine shape. In fact, you can go back even further because of that, that fellow I mentioned before, John Jocelyn. He's got an 18, uh, 1639 report of a sea monster in, at that area. But they are consistent, and that's what makes me suspicious that, that, that there might be something there. Now, there's a fellow, for lack of a better word, who has a book out called Entangled, who argues that what the monster in Cape Ann is, is a fish or turtle that is tangled up in fishing lines. And because the hemp rope was treated with tar, it didn't rot away, and the fish had to drag this around, and if it couldn't catch anything because it was 
so hampered by the extra weight, it would starve to death. And it's a it's a marvelously elegant little theory, except when you see, you know, 300 years of sightings of the same creature. That's a mighty healthy critter. And, of course, the, the argument there would be that it, you don't see these reports anymore because modern-day nets are biodegradable. The plastic rots away after a while. Of course, by then the fish is dead, but eh, call it a whim. But Dave, if yeah, this you know, just say this turtle has um, had this fishing uh, the tar covered fishing net wrapped around him for a hundred years, a a turtle could still. be alive today from 150, you know, like before the Civil War. I I, I don't know if you can go back to the... You are correct. Um, The problem is that's a turtle that can swim. Um, The leatherbacks are the big ones out in the ocean. They have a very limited diet, and it's, it's usually things like jellyfish, small, soft critters. And if they can't dive down to get it, they're not going to last a hundred years. Right. Okay. That's 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 my argument against it. Uh, in certain cases, I don't think it works well in the Cape Ann Sea Monster or the Gloucester Monster or whatever we're calling it this year. Could could any of these sightings, uh, you know, is say, you know, like the from the Miles Standish time period um could any of those sightings be of some species um you know it kind of made its home in the you know like the southern new england area and has since uh, become extinct. H- have you encountered anything like that? I don't think it's out of the question. Um, I, I have, I do not have the report in front of me, but there is several studies that note that because of mankind hunting fish and, well, for that matter, any animal, they're not getting as big as they used to be. Because they get to a certain size and we're going to get them. So consequently, animals have been getting smaller the longer mankind is impacting the habitat by cutting back on the food supply, by disrupting the water, and of course by hunting the fish or hunting the turtle or whatever it is. So in theory, we could also just be looking at stuff that is not as big as it used to be. Today, you look at a, a turtle, a leatherback turtle, and it's, yeah, that's nice. It's a leather. A hundred years ago, you could get nine-foot-long, 1,200-pound turtles. In fact, there's a whole lot of newspapers at that time talking about how they captured these giant monsters. They're not monsters. They just happen to be turtles that didn't encounter humans up until that point. Cut the, cut the turtle a break. 
and we know that um, there are fossil turtles that are big, really, really big. Mm-hmm. But you can't necessarily connect one to the other without some sort of a fossil record. I mean, if the fossils – keep in mind what I'm about to say I'm about to disprove, though. Uh, if there's no record of a, a giant turtle for the last two million years, the odds are it died out two million years ago, or you know, we'll we'll be generous to say a million years ago. But then you have things like the coelacanth. Coelacanth was supposedly extinct, and then they started bringing them up in the fishing nets, which is kind of makes it a little tricky. So I, there's a different classification where it's a uh, – it is simply an unknown animal, whether it's a um, – and it has to be natural. I should clarify that. We're not talking about um, uh, Slender Man or E.T. or any of that. This, these are natural, natural creatures that have simply not been classified yet. But there's also – living fossils, and that would be things like the coelacanth, which everybody thought was extinct for a few million years. Whoops, we're wrong. Uh, The Komodo dragon was a land crocodile. They've only known about that for the last, since about the 1930s. In fact, I'll, I'll show you how good I am at this. Lovecraft saw the first Komodos brought to North America in the Bronx Zoo. 20s. In fact, I'll go one further. He also saw those exact same two Komodo after they died of starvation and got stuffed and put in the American Museum of Natural History where they still are. So he saw them coming in going. But Komodo dragon, that was a a living fossil. It was there all along, just nobody had spotted it. We all assumed it was extinct. The Okapi, again, nobody knew it was there. Then you have what I refer to as Lazarus species, and those are species that everybody assumed was extinct within our lifetime, and they're back. Uh, They still think the ivory-billed woodpecker is not extinct, but they haven't found one. If they find one, then it becomes a Lazarus species. It's back from the dead. And you see them every so often, mostly in in, uh, fairly uninhabited areas. Uh, parts of Australia, parts of the Indonesia, that sort of thing. But they mm-hmm. do exist, and they are technically cryptids, but you know, different animal. Okay, and in a uh, similarly uh, related topic, uh, you also wanted to uh, discuss. Um, you know, some research you've done into the mer-beings. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that topic? Yes, uh, by carefully saying it weren't my idea. Uh, I am on the board of directors of the International Cryptozoology Museum up in Portland. The perfect gig for me. I never have to go to a meeting. I'm too far away. Um, but Lauren Coleman is the director of the museum, and he was a friend of a Fordian 
researcher named Mark Hall. Now, Mark Hall had a fascinating theory. Um, whether you agree with it or not is irrelevant because I'm a historian. I don't, I don't have to agree with it. I just have to look at it from that perspective. And Mark's theory was that mermaids were actually primates that they had branched off from the main tree of humanity and from a species known as Oreopithecus, which was a small mammal, I would call it a monkey, a chimpanzee size, that they had found, they found in uh, Italy, and it looks like it was living in the swamps. Now, his argument, his logic was that the Oreopithecus became a water dwellers. It was a time when you had all these different types of humanoids battling for dominancy, the Homo sapiens, the uh, various and sundry uh, Neanderthals, the uh, Homo floriensis, the... And, uh, he found it would be easier for a species to live on the edge and semi-aquatic. Uh, they would wade into the water and feed on aquatic plants. Also, based on the mammal, uh, the fossils of the Oreopithecus, they're saying it may have also eaten freshwater invertebrates. So in other words, it was adapting to a swamp environment. It was eating plants and small animals it could capture. Now, this is sort of related to a, a 1960s anthropology theory called waterside hypotheses. And that was the work of a British anthropologist named Alistair Hardy, who argued that the, the traditional mental, if you think of man coming down from the trees, he's wandering around the savannas, walking around, dodging leopards. That's wrong. His theory was that Homo sapiens has more traits suited for an aquatic, uh, the subcutaneous fat, um, the ability to hold your breath, um, hairless bodies, which reduce resistance when you're swimming mm -hmm. and his the argument was and in both cases is that they had to go deeper for water they learned they could rest their feet on the bottom and keep their head above water therefore they were standing erect with the body holding their weight before they actually could walk on the two legs and as time goes on this allows them to walk upright on dry land. Now, the, the revised version with the Oreopithecus is that these aquatic apes were smarter than the apes out in the savanna because brain-specific nutrients, um, such as DHA, are, are very helpful for the development of brain. Uh, algae and plankton are, are rich in DHA. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. I, I've tried for years to pronounce it, and I can't. It's DHA. Um, 
the people, the things that eat algae and plankton are fish and shellfish. So an ape who is eating fish and shellfish or uh, turtles or seabird eggs is going to develop a more advanced brain. They eventually branch off completely. Homo erectus is out wandering around, making things difficult. They just go into the water, and they stay in the water. And the difference between the original aquatic ape theory and the oropithecus theory is that the aquatic ape people think that during the the Pleistocene, the primate ancestors all go back to drier land, and now they're bipedal omnivores and scavengers. And as the climate conditions change, they they became more focused on hunting. And Mark Hall's theory was that the Oreopithecus avoided this competition for land by testing the waters. Now, human beings have a lot of branches that died off, except if you're Mark Hall. Um, you've got things like the neo-giants, the little people, the trolls, Neanderthals, Bigfoot. He thinks all of these other lines of primates are still around that uh, are Homo floriensis, trolls are Homo gadarensis, um, Neanderthals are Bigfoot. So what he is arguing is, is that these Oreopithecus became so equipped for living in the water, they rarely came ashore. And because they were in the water, which is colder, they had to develop supplementary wardrobe. And that's why they're thought to be mermaids. Mermaids are not half. They are Oreopithecus apes that are wearing fish skins with tails, and the tails help them move through the water better. And that is the origin of the mermaid legend, according to Mark Hall. You notice I'm making sure I don't have my name attached to this. That's his theory. If you look at his theory from a strictly historical perspective, you can interpret a lot of the mermaid folklore throughout the world, Native American, um, modern North America. You can reinterpret it. Um, We'll use one of the more famous ones. Uh, 1610, Richard Whitburn, North, um, wandering, was on the shore up in Newfoundland. They see something swimming toward them. Appears to be a cheerful woman. When closer, they realize it has no hair, just length, neck length blue streaks on its body, which people mistranslate as blue, blue hair. Um, they got within 20 feet of them. They decided to back off. They it they start putting some distance between them and the shore. It makes it it gets the hint. It turns around and dives back, and that's when they realize that the shoulders and back are human. But from the waist down, it has a tail and a broad hooked arrow shape of a tail at that, and it does something that you see a lot of. 
and again, this could be behavior. You see a lot of they mermaid, I'll call it for that for the lack of better term, goes out to one of the other rowboats and tries to climb aboard. One of the sailors hits it in the head with an oar. It takes the hint again. But this grasping the boat and trying to come ashore, you see it over and over and over again. So it may be a behaviorism. I mean, it's not just this guy. I mean, John Jocelyn says the same thing in Maine. And the earliest one that I found is actually a 1578 account in Brazil where a mermaid comes comes up onto the little boat, tries to get inside, and the usual version of it is they cut off the hand with a hatchet. Everybody is stealing from everybody else, dating back to the 1578 account, or there is a history of it. Okay, I was going to say, it sounds like it's almost the same story. Yeah, but... And I would know, that would be my first inst- inclination as well. But then you look at what's going on in depth in the folklore in the uh, Carolinas, and that's where the lizard men are. You know, six, seven foot tall, bipedal, looks like a lizard, three toes, claws. Sleep stacks. Cl- yeah, sleep stacks, exactly what. And they're climbing on top of cars. And North Carolina has a history of a, for lack of a better word, it's classified as a ghost that hops on the back of your horse when you're crossing and won't let go. So it sounds like it's a version of the this mounting of the vehicle or horse is similar to the grabbing of the ship or the boat. So I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting pattern. But there are – you look at a standard report from Europe, the mermaid comes ashore and you steal her her mirror or you steal her comb and she can't go back into the water. Well, if you work from Mark's perspective – that's a garbled version of what's happening. You're learn this is an instruction on how to stop a mermaid by stealing their booby gear, for lack of a better way to phrase it. Not their cap, their goggles. Not their mirror. It's the glass in the in the viewing platform. Basically, you're stealing enough of the garb that they're wearing that they can't risk going back into the water. And you see that throughout Europe in Asia and Australia particularly, you've got stories where people are literally uh, able to just take take the tail off and walk into a village. There's a party in the village, there's a celebration, the mermaids come ashore, they hide their tail and they just go in. In New Zealand, the Maori, Maori, I'm starting to lose my voice here, uh, the images, some of them are serpentine tails, like a mermaid, and they have a long tongue. Well, if you look at the long tongue from the perspective of being an air-breathing primate, it looks more like a snorkel. 
So do I necessarily buy into it? Not my job. I, I wrote, cleaned up the book. I added a few extra stories. I interpreted them in the way that Mark Hall would have, and it, it's, it's an interesting reinterpretation of classic mermaid lore. Fascinating. Um, it, 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 just to go back for uh, a few minutes, with the uh, a native folklore with the uh, horned horned you know, serpents. Yep, you know the horned serpent. Do we have an idea of what? those uh, creatures could have been? Is it something that's gone extinct? Is it kind of like uh, uh, some type of like hybrid animal, like a buffalo uh, horn, uh, you know, like we find in the Egyptian um, hieroglyphs, you know, Anubis, you know, the dog head and human body. Is it, do you think it's something like that? Is it, you know, just showing uh, uh, some kind of cultural uh, symbol or something that was, you know, really there that, uh, you know, may have gone extinct uh, for, uh, you know, climate change in the last hundred years? Well, the the problem is, we don't know what they mean, what is meant by a horned serpent because all of the stories have been written down and translated by missionaries. Mm-hmm. The horns vary in color and size and shape. The only thing they all agree on is that it seems to be a potent source of magic, which doesn't really help us at all. Now, there's an ethno-historian named uh, George Lankford who argues, and this is a key argument to me as well, that although it's always referred to as the great serpent, sometimes it doesn't have horns, it's a large group. It's a horned serpent is actually horned serpents, plural. And there's an interesting variety of sizes as well. Uh, and the horns look like, well, the Mi'kmaq up in Canada. I'm trying to think where. Nova Scotia. No, okay. Kedjimkujik National Park now. I'm not good with pronunciation. Um there are two uh, – Ed Lenick, my buddy again, says there are 33 snake images, including two very different representations of the horned serpent. One has a curved snout and small pointed horns. The other one has a, a, a pointed snout. It tapers to a point, and it has stylized antlers. And where it gets even more complicated is there's 
no bigger than a worm sometimes in the in the account. Sometimes it's bigger than the largest serpent. That doesn't tell me anything. Um, some of them have feet as opposed to having fin. There's no rhyme or reason to it. There's one in uh, Pet- uh, Peterborough, oh, Ontario. Ontario. Yep, you're you're faster yep. at it than I am. Uh, it, it's okay, a well, thing undulating with a tail and just simple lines. So we don't know what they look like. And the reason I, I, I mentioned how much variety there is, and I know we're running out of time quickly, um, is that yeah, we there have is like 90 seconds. Of, yeah. There are still reports of sea monsters today that have bumps or horns. So they may not be extinct. It just may be we're misinterpreting what is meant by a horned serpent. Okay. Well, we're going to have to stop there. Uh, Dave, can, can you uh, give out you know website, anything, uh, you know, where to find your books? Then we're going to have to wrap it up for the evening. Thank you. You bet. Um, my books are all available on Amazon. Just type in my last name, G-O-U-D-S-W-A-R-D. You'll get my books, you'll get my brother's horror books, and you'll get a distant cousin who's got some odd titles of his own out there. Otherwise, you can visit me on my website, which is goudzord.com. Just go slash Dave or click on my picture. I share the account with my brother. And it'll give you every book I put out in your wildest dreams. Okay. All right. So we're just about out of time. Thank you so much. Uh, Dave, for being a a, a great guest, and we'll see everyone soon.